Hi, I'm Sam McMurray. I played Dr. John Kennedy on The Sopranos. Are you listening to Pada Bing? I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos one episode at a time. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this right now. And please share this episode or your favorite one with one new person. If you love the podcast, you can support it at any level by visiting glow.fm slash potabing. Finally, as always, thank you for listening and being part of this journey. Coming up is a conversation I had with Sam McMurray. Sam played Dr. John Kennedy on the show. You know, the guy with a B on his hat. Sam was kind enough to call in between projects and go down memory lane for a while. The guy has more acting credits than a small army. That's all I got. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, listeners. Here's me talking to Sam McMurray. Sam, thanks again for being a part of this. Sure. So, some foundational questions. Where from originally? I'm originally from New York, New York. I grew up in Greenwich Village. And how'd you get into acting? My parents were both actors, primarily in the theater. Of course, my dad moved out here in the mid-60s, but uh, initially they were in the theater when I was born and so forth. So I grew up in it. Um, I went off to college without any particular notion of what I wanted to do. And before I knew it, I was doing theater. So when I was about 20 or so, I told my dad and my mother that I, I wanted to be an actor. And my father said, why don't you do something that's more secure? I said, like what? And he said, like, be a writer. But you see, that's, that's how skewed our perspective gets. Hmm. Although there's some truth to it because you can write for yourself, whereas you can't really act for yourself, you know. Anyway, so that's how I got into it, and I got out of school. I was not a drama major. I was actually an English major at Washington University in St. Louis. I came back to New York and um, started to make the rounds, and, um, you know, I did so. And in 86, I moved out here to L.A. You've been here ever since. Um, And I've been here ever since. I go back to New York pretty frequently, and actually, I think 2000, I went and I actually put myself on... Um, not Betamax, but on a VHS tape. That was the um, the audition process. I was right around, well, I'm, I'm not sure as to when it was. It was around at, like Rosh Hashanah or a Jewish island, I believe. But we got it in the mail um, and booked it. And they flew me in. And uh, I remember it was the World Series between the Yankees and the Mets in, in 2000. And my mother still lived there, so I stayed in the spare room in her apartment. And... Um, Never got into, never got to one of the games. Although my friend who was going to hook me up with tickets kept telling me every time, "Oh, just call me at five o'clock," and I never got to see a game. But I did do this show, and uh, it was terrifically enjoyable. I, I'd worked with Tim Van Patten before, who was the director on it. I had done a series in New York in '95 called Matt Waters, which he did a number of. And uh, I remember talking to Tim and saying, "You know, my dad, who, as I said, was an actor. My dad and your dad are friends." He said. You mean Dick Van Patten? I said, yeah. He said, that's not my father. That's my brother, <laughs> which I thought was quite amazing. They're all, they're a whole bunch of, they're all siblings of, some, of one form or another. Um, anyway, so that was fun. 
doing the show, and I became friends with Jimmy, um, and I knew Dominic. I knew Dominic from New York days, and, and to a lesser degree, uh, Tony Sirica, I must have called him Junior, but we don't call him that anymore, because um, that's how I knew him many years ago. Right. I've heard people say that he was called Junior before. Uh, he Forever, became, yeah, but oh. now he's got to be, what is he, 75 or something? You yeah, know? he's up there. But they were all terrific. I had actually done a movie, I think I did it, I think I did the movie before I did Sopranos with Edie Falco down in Florida, which is a terrific movie by John Sayles called, uh, yeah, Sunshine State. Oh, yes. And uh, she had driven down there with her dog and stuff, and she's wonderful. So it was a, it was a very nice set, you know, and I think I was there for like 10 days because um, they were fairly um, laborious in terms of how they did it. And remember, we did the table read, and I think it's one of the better scripts the Sopranos ever did, Second Opinion, actually. It's a great episode, classic it episode. Really a terrific episode. And Mike Nichols actually read The Psychiatrist, the part that was played by Sully Boyer. Yes, Dr. Krakauer. Right. And he then opted out. I didn't. I wasn't present for that. I got to know. Actually, I got to know Nichols later in a, in a wonderful audition situation that he made all the more wonderful. But for Spamalot. But um, I guess he felt that he would. It would distract. That it was a little bit of stunt casting. Ah. And so he used Sully, who was an old friend of my mother's, actually. Interesting. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about it, and I don't know. I don't know if I should entirely say this, but I just think it's a testimony. If you look at that scene at the end with Sully and Edie, yes, they had sent Sully home because he couldn't remember the words. And they had shot him out on one side, and they turned around on Edie. I may be wrong about this, but I don't think so. And he did; she did it all at whatever it was, 3 o'clock in the morning, doing it to a piece of tape on the, on the camera. Get out of here. They'd sense, no, I kid you not. That's how brilliant she was. And then the terrible thing is, I believe the day it was airing, Sully died. Had like a heart attack. Very shortly thereafter, yes. Oh, you know that, yeah. Yeah, Sully was in, I believe he was in a production of Mother Courage with the late Anne Bancroft that my mother was in, that Jerome Robbins directed. I believe that. I may be wrong about that, but I know that he, they knew one another and so forth. My mother knew a lot of people in the earth too. She was kind of an established figure for, Jesus, 70 years or so. So Edie and Sully Boyer, just so I hear you correctly, did not read lines together. That was No, they read together, but they shot Sully out. They shot him if out. If you know what I mean. Yeah. They shot his side because he was having trouble memorizing his lines. I'm sure Edie was there for him. But then it was late, and they sent him home, and then Edie basically played it to nobody in particular. Amazing. Now, if you talk to Edie, and I'm wrong about that, tell her I'm sorry. But I don't. Th- I think it certainly is a compliment in terms of her. You know, she's a wonderful actress. Absolutely. Um, you uh, hit the ground running and set up the backstory for me. So thank you for that. Did you ever read for anything else for that show? You know, I had the, the summer before I was in New York. Uh, I would often go back in those days. I think the last time I was there was 2000. I went to the O'Neill Playwrights Conference, which is in Waterford, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And I'd been there something like nine different years. And I think this was either the next to last or the last time I was there. And, um, I was, you know, on my way back to LA, I stopped in New York as I often did. And I did read for, for George Jan for something, uh, which I didn't get. Um, but you know, I guess that didn't hurt and it kept me in mind and so forth. Funny thing is when I was 20, I did a job 
at the John Drew Playhouse in East Hampton, New York, when the theater was run by Edward Albee and Richard Barr. And my mother had done the original production of Edward Albee's uh, American Dream. And anyway, that's I basically got that job through nepotism. I was like Griffin Dunn and I were the uh, we were the two apprentices there. But anyway, the point was that summer they did a play which was sort of a new version of Oedipus called The Palace at 4 a.m. And there was a terrific young actor there named Chris Walken who was there with his wife, Georgian, who later wound up being the casting director on Sopranos. But right. Georgian had originally been in West Side Story with Chris, one of the many tours that there were of the, of the, of the show. And um, so it all comes around, I suppose. You know. Anyway, when I got, when I got the Sopranos... Georgian, I got a message afterwards, and I don't care, this is fine. I had, my friend Saul Rubinick was kind enough to direct me, and at the time there was a, a commercial strike in L.A., and I knew a guy named Jeff Girardi, who we were parents together at our kids' preschool, and he was a commercial director, very busy, but they were on strike. And I called him up, he said, come over, you can use my videotaping, I'll shoot it for you. So he shot the audition, and Saul directed me. And... Um, when we got finished, I remember I had mailed the thing off, and I got a phone call in the car saying, uh, Georgian called and said, don't play it over the top. Don't play it too big. So I turned to Saul, who I was driving home, and I said, did I play it very sort of close to the vest? And he said, no, not particularly. <laughs> <laughs> but it was sort of after the fact. And then when I got the thing, I go to New York, and Georgian says, see, I told you. I said, absolutely, whatever you say, you know. Right. Um, anyway. But it was a very fun shoot. And as I said, I became friends with Jimmy, and he was also on the verge of signing and did sign with um, my business manager, who I'm still with, and, and Roger Haber is his name, and he handles Michael Imperioli, and he handles some of the other guys, too. Interesting. Um, yeah, so I stayed in touch with Jimmy. In fact, I saw him about a year, almost to the day before he died. We all went out one night and got rather silly. Um Good man. I, I miss him. I, I thought he was a, kind of a brilliant actor. That's all. Where yeah. were you and what were you doing, um, if you can remember, when you found out about his passing? And oh, how I did you know. find out? I was, I was here in L.A., but I do remember it was just, when did, when did he go? Do you remember? Uh, was, I want to say 2013. Yeah, okay. Uh, August? Yeah, because a year it was earlier in the than that, Roger had rented um, a stretch limo, and he's a member of Lakeside which is a very nice uh, golf course. And we all went there, and there was some sort of silly night in which they had all kinds of uh, diversions. They had boxing matches and stuff like that. Mm. And we all got out, and we got fairly well oiled, but we weren't driving, you know? That was the whole point of the stretch limo. And I hadn't seen Jimmy in a while, but we, we hung out pretty good, and I just liked him. He was just a, a good dude. I was also, I got friendly also with Federico Castelluccio, um, but I haven't seen him in forever. So, you know, and I knew Michael, and Michael was also with Roger, so, you know, like that. It's a, it's a small world altogether. It is a small world, and you guys happen to have some great scenes in this episode that I'm going to get to. So, as mentioned, you, you appeared in Second Opinion, which is one of the better episodes of the series. I'd probably put right. it, rank it in the top five of the entire series. Um, as Junior Soprano's doctor, Dr. John Kennedy, any right. insight on the choice of the name for your character? 
Did you even ask or inquire about that? I didn't ask, but I think it's quite apparent. You know, in the scene, the two of them have in the elevator, Dominic and and, and, and Jimmy, where he goes, he goes, well, what about the thing with Hoffa? And, and Dominic goes, that was the brother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Dominic is hysterical in that scene, if you remember, where he's, he's doing his, whatever, his cancer milkshake. Yeah. And he does everything but forgets to put the, the top on the blender and it blows up in his face. I laugh every time I see that thing, you know. Uh, and the funny thing is, you probably spoke with Dominic, maybe not, but he is the absolute diagonal opposite of that person. He's one of the sweetest, kindest people you'll ever know. He's sort of an Italian Pete Seeger. I mean, really. I mean, just he takes his guitar and he sings to everybody and um, he's a wonderful actor, you know. In fact... It's a testament to all your performances, right? That they're the exact opposite of what you would expect them to be. Um, And I haven't had a chance to speak with him yet. He's definitely on my list, as you can imagine, though. Oh, you should definitely talk to Dominic. Um, In fact, I had been with him the summer before I did the show. We were at the O'Neill together, and he had, I think it was the first year, or maybe just the second year of the show, and he says, Sam, I don't know what to do. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, you know, I, I don't know if my agent is, is going to get me on it. They're going to put bring me back on the show. I said, Dominic, if they don't bring you back on the show, I'm going to be your agent. I want to hear about that, you know? <laughs> just And, of course, they did. Uh, but he's an absolutely lovely guy, and he and I had I'd known him at Ensemble Studio Theater, which I'd been a member of since, I think, like 1975, you know? So, um, anyway, sweetheart. The bee on your hat scene at the golf club yeah. with Tony and Furio, what do you remember yeah. about that sequence? Well, there were some logistics that had to be worked out. First of all, uh, Tim didn't like the hat. And I don't entirely disagree with them. So I was, I didn't want any. I don't think they wanted any kind of brand on it. They didn't want like you know a baseball team or product placement. I don't know, you know, anything like that. So we avoided that. But the hat itself was rather a subject of not controversy, but <laughs> discussion. Yeah. And um, but okay, so I wore the hat. And the other thing was that in terms of golf, and I do play golf. Um, I wouldn't be away the way the way the thing was scripted. I wouldn't be the one to hit, but we got it on that. We sat on that with it. Um, you know, um, the funny thing is we shot it out in New Jersey and it was, we were right outside a friend of mine's house, which was so strange. Wonderful actress named Susan Knight. And I had been, um, at her house with her baby and husband and having dinner like a year earlier. And I go, I go, I know this here. And she comes out and says, oh, what are you doing here? And it was a lot of fun. And the only thing I will say is that, you know, Jimmy was very tough on himself. And, How so? um, well, if he screwed up a line, he'd get extremely angry with him. Never with anybody else, just at himself. And as you recall, he's got a, a driver in his hand, right? That he's going to give me as a present. And he bops the line or whatever, which, you know, is no big deal. It happens all the time, right? Yeah. And also, you know, you, you're doing a television series and you're always in a hurry. Um, it's like if you go to a screening of a, a multiple camera show out here, and I do, you know, a number of them, I, like Mom and stuff like that, it's rare that you get through a scene unblemished. You invariably somebody screws up because you get rewrites up to the last minute and, you know, like that. Anyway, it's not that much different in terms of doing a one-camera show. 
So Jimmy, I don't know, he bought a ball to the line and he takes the, 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 the head of the driver, you know, the, 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 literally the club head and whacks himself on the back of his hand with it. And I'm like, Jesus, William, take it easy. And Federico goes, no, no, don't, don't interfere. You know, like, <laughs> okay. But no, he was just a, he was a special guy, truly. Um, but no, he was just, you know, I'd always heard this, that he was very tough on himself, um, which was, I don't know, I guess part of this process. Um, well said. You know. I'm going to say a name. Tell me the first thing, first word, uh, first thought that comes to mind. James Gandolfini. Smile. Dominic. Dominic. Sweetheart. David Chase. David Chase. Fascinating. Now, I have to go on with this a little bit. I wrote, I flew in with him. And we talked, and we talked, and we talked. Wait, wait, but rewind, rewind. Tell this story. So I fly in, we're on the same plane, as it turns out. I don't know if we talked on the flight. I didn't recognize Accidentally? Him. I guess accidentally. Well, you know, it kind of timed out. He lives in L.A., too. But we talked and talked. And I will tell you one thing about the scene, with the, which I'm glad you reminded me of. Um... So the scene, he, you know, he accosts me on the golf course. And after that, you see that I've become far more docile and less, you know, um, more curious. Yeah. Right. Right. So I want to put this right. A lot of times when one does episodic television, you're basically bound by the strictures of the medium. I remember doing a show years ago when I first moved out to L.A. called O'Hara with Pat Morita. And I was the bad guy. And the, the show kind of meandered, and then we get to the last 10 minutes. And actually, the director was a guy who'd known my father, a guy named E.J. Swackhammer. And at the last moment, I pull a gun out, and I threaten Catherine Keener, who played one of the regular cops with um, uh, Pat. And, of course, they wrestle me to the ground, and the episode is over. Now, why did I do it at that point? Well, because there were only five minutes left in the show. There was nothing logistical in the writing that indicated why I would lose my mind like that. Do you understand? Yeah. So, to some degree, I become, as we all have, and I've been out here over 30 years, become sort of inured to the way uh, most television is. Now, Sopranos, happily, wasn't most television. And I'm on the set there, and we're out in New Jersey, and I... I realized, oh, this is the part where I get all nervous and piss myself. And I thought, well, maybe not. So I go to David, Chase is on the set, and I say, listen, I'm, I'm sort of like a big shot in my own particular profession, aren't I? And he goes, yeah. And I go, so I wouldn't necessarily give in to him here, would I? And he says, absolutely. And because I thought of that, I was able to play not so much against it, but I didn't play into the... Um, you know, the usual sort of uh, line of reasoning, not even line of reasoning, the sort of the usual plot line. Hmm. Because you're going to see that I'm nicer to Junior than, I mean, to, to Uncle, to, to Dom Uncle Junior the next time you see me. Right. I don't have to tip that off. And that's the great thing about the show, but about Sopranos, about The Wire, about a number of better television series, you know. Um, but I remember asking David that and afterwards thinking, well, oh, I'm so glad I brought that up with him. Otherwise, I would have gone to a kind of usual kind of, I don't know, not conformist, but a, a kind of conventional sort of ending like, oh, and this is where I'm supposed to piss my pants. No, you maybe piss your pants later, but you didn't tell him about it. You know what I mean? And I think the scene had more life that way because I'm trying to, I'm standing up to him. 
Absolutely. Very interesting optics about how you step back into the creek, if you will, but you held your ground. Your posture doesn't really change. And then when they drive away, you have a moment with yourself, but you don't let them see it. And that that was a brilliant realization on your part. Yeah, I think think it played better, quite honestly, that way. That's all. I mean, it's just like, you know, tell my story. Never mind the other one. And that's, that's the writing. Yeah, I mean, you of know, course. The, the writing on that episode, we, talk, we mentioned that. It's just so, I mean, that's the, this, I just remember the thing where, um, where she throws the orange juice carton at him. Yes. Right? Some pulp. <laughs> and she goes, I am some pulp. Anyway. Yeah. Kills me. Anyway. Um, wonderful. I'm going to ask you a question, which is going to be rhetorical later, but it'll probably come back to the writing. Let's see. Um, it sounds like you were a fan of the show. Did you watch the show oh, end yeah. to end? Absolutely. Every Sunday, I was there. So it was appointment television for you and your family and your household. Big time. Yep. Actually, it was mostly me. By then, my wife and I had split, and the girls were sometimes with me and sometimes elsewhere. But the funny thing is my younger daughter just watched the whole series. My older daughter had seen it, and she watched all of it from, you know, soup to nuts, which was kind of interesting. Um, What did your younger daughter think of it? Was she moved by it? Oh, she liked it. Oh, yeah, no, she liked it a lot, so... A lot of people that listen to the podcast are people that have come to it for the first time that were too young to watch it during the original airing or, yeah. or, or that, you know, didn't have cable because they were students or whatever. Right. And, right. And, and so it's, it, there's this new life that's coming into it. Well, it's like friends. I mean, it basically never grows old. You know, I right. did a, a bunch of friends and, it, yeah. you know, I get recognized by Gen Y, whoever the newest generation is. It's kind of remarkable. The show just will not go away. And not that I want it to, you know, there's, no. Sometimes a check in the mail. So, unlike Sopranos, which almost doesn't pay anything. Thoughts on the ending? Any reaction? Any perspective on the ending from your point of view? I that other people were upset by it, and I thought it was brilliant. You know? In fact, what was I watching the other day? Oh, the end of Man in the High Castle. I thought, that went absolutely nowhere. You know? But I thought, I thought Chase's sense of humor and his... It was just wonderful, you know, and it worked, I thought. So people that didn't, well, you know, get over it. Um, yeah, I, I love the end, all of it. You know, for that matter, I love Nurse Jackie. I think, you know, I just think Edie's just tremendous. She's exceptional. So, exceptional. Yeah. So last count on IMDb, you've got over 195 acting credits for film and television. Yeah. So you have perspective, to say the least. <laughs> why, so. why do you think people are still connected to this show, unlike really any other? What's not? I mean, name something that's comparable that doesn't have a follow-up. Although I will also say this. There are certain shows that do not have a second life and there's no particular explanation for it. You know, I mean, I'm sort of answering your question in reverse. When I first moved to L.A., I did a show called The Tracy Ullman Show, which was in the very early days of the Fox Network. And um, it ran for three and a half seasons. It got 23 Emmy nominations, which was all of which were for the, all of, for, the, for the Fox Network, all of which were from the Tracy, for the Tracy Ullman Show, if you follow me, right? Hmm. The last season, we won we won an Emmy for Best Variety Show. It has never repeated. It is not in syndication. I don't know where it is. Some people have, you know, um, there's a guy who calls himself Tracy Ullman on um, Instagram. And thank goodness for him because he has actually rescued whole episodes from the trash. Interesting. And it's 
it's it's just I don't know. Maybe there's some sort of legal problem or something like that. But there is no you don't. The only way you can see it is on um, you know on YouTube. Um, hmm. So I, I don't know. I don't know why that or why not this or something like that. I mean, Freaks and Geeks was like that, which I was also a part of. Right. You know. Um, it's funny, I'm just, I also did a series in 93, this rather short-lived series, of A League of Their Own. Yeah. Right? Based on, and Tom Hanks directed an episode, and I played the Tom Hanks role. And Penny was still involved, of course, as was Bob Lou and Lowell, uh, as was the late Gary Marshall. They're doing a reboot of it. And they called me up to, to read for the part that Gary Marshall did. I mean, talk about, as my agent said, you know, how meta can this get, you know? But I don't know. I mean, obviously, I don't know why that has such an impact. I mean, I guess the wire does too. Yes. And I think this, to some degree, uh, what do you call it? Uh, HBO accepts that and expects these things to, to pay and down the road. So they'll, you know, amortize their costs over time. But I just think, you know, good material is good material always. And, um, and Sopranos is one of the best ever, right? Right, uh, absolutely. And I was going to say, and to your point that you were making earlier, just sprinkle on a little bit of William Goldman's statement, nobody knows anything. True, true. But, and then Chase is doing another movie, right? He's yeah. doing something with, with Jimmy's son, playing the young version. It's the prequel to yeah. The Sopranos. Well, I, I'm a fan of, of his. So, absolutely. You know, that's good. Did you By see Not means. Fade Away? Did you see his first feature? I loved it. Loved it too. Loved it. Yeah. Yep. Jimmy's great in it too. You yeah. Know? Oh, it was it was, yeah. a, it was a perfect way for them to pivot away from that character and um, mm-hmm. it di- didn't find a big audience. But uh, moving away from the Sopranos, I'm going to name a project you were a part of in the past. Tell me uh, a word or two on the first thing that comes to mind for you today. Raising Arizona. Most enjoyable movie set I've ever worked on. Wow! After all this time, that's an amazing statement. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, was it because of the, the newness uh, career-wise and sort of like the spirit no. of it? No, I, I knew it. I mean, you know, I'd been, I'd been doing it for yeah. a while. I still lived in New York when that thing shot, but I knew John Goodman was an old friend and still is. Um, well, and Holly I knew. I knew Holly and I knew Francis. They lived around the corner from me. You okay. know the story with that, with Holly getting um, the, the, the other way around. Holly was supposed to do Blood Simple. But she was unavailable because she was doing um, a Beth Headley play on Broadway. And she said, you should meet my roommate, who was Francis, who I knew from having worked with her at the O'Neill, who was a Yaley. And Francis, of course, wound up doing Blood Simple. And, and so that Francis actually read for the part of my wife. She insisted on reading for the part to Joel, who said, well, you know, you've got it. She says, no, no, I'm coming and I want to read for it. So she did. But the set was terrific. There was no money to be made. We were out in, you know, Scottsdale. Um, but they, 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 went to the, they went the extra mile for us. Sure. When my wife was flying out, they didn't even ask me. They just drove out to the airport and picked her up. Uh, my favorite, one of my favorite stories was when they were doing, um, we were out in the desert and it was hot and so forth. They would fill a stick bed truck. They would line it with garbage bags, right, like black garbage bags, and fill it with ice. So by the time lunch came around, it was a little swimming pool, and the crew would jump in, stuff like that. They were terrifically hospitable. Mm-hmm. They had bumped up their distributor and made them into a producer. Um, 
and it was just a lot of fun. It was a good group. Everybody, Nick and everyone, and Billy Forsyth, who I worked with another time. Um, in a movie called Stone Cold, which was an entirely different beast. Right. Um, but that was kind of fun, too, just because they couldn't, the movie never ended. It was like they could not figure it out. And they, you know, they come to my trailer and they go, Brian doesn't want to say this, being Brian Bosworth, the lead and so forth. And I would rewrite it on the spot. <laughs> and then we'd go and shoot it. It was like that. Um, Anyway, so it was also very remunerative, which is no longer the case in movies. It's ever since, like, really since 99. They just don't pay anymore. You know, that's sort of the new, that's the new paradigm, if you will. For character actors and... Yeah, it basically anybody. It started, actually, I did that Mod Squad, which was 99, actually. Yeah. And everybody below the three leads, you know, Claire and Omar and Giovanni were BC. I don't know if John, what kind of money John, Giovanni got, but we all got paid shit. We all basically was all scale plus 10, take it or leave it. And I was running the picture. I didn't like the bad guy in it. And then he did another one called Drop Dead Gorgeous, which was more enjoyable, actually. But it was the same deal. So after whatever it was. I don't know how many weeks, maybe 16 weeks or something like that. The run the picture on two movies, I'd made no money. Hmm. And I basically, I said, well, you know what? I got to go back to television. Not that I'm, not that I'm a movie snob. I'm not, but television is the last meritocracy. And it's also the only place you can make money anymore. Although more and more, you know, um, they're squeezing you. I mean, I just did, um, two episodes of a series, which I think is very funny called United We Fail. And um, the uh, they pick it up for like eight for mid-season. I don't understand the thinking behind that. Maybe there's somebody, you know, who can compute that and tell you why it saves the, you know, the, the network money and stuff like that. But basically that's what they do, you know. And they, they shrink the episode count. They shrink the episode countdown to uh, whatever they think makes most sense economically. I mean, even a show like Sopranos, quite honestly, was sort of, they were the precursors of you make five seasons, but it takes you eight years. Yeah. So I won't get into it because I don't really know, but I know that Jimmy would go in and he'd get his money first. And then after that, you know, everybody was on their own. So... Couple more projects that uh, that I enjoyed that you were a part of, and it was fun to go do a little IMDb deep dive on you before we sat down. Uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. A word or two on that project. You know what? I went in. I think I worked a week on that, and it. I get recognized for that as much as anything, particularly of course around Christmas time. Right now, exactly. Just recently yeah, watched. Yeah, it's very really strange that it works out like that, but I guess it does. You know and. It was essentially, you know, forgettable experience. Um, but fair yeah, enough. There isn't, yeah, you know, no, I love raising Arizona. I like doing uh, uh, Drop Dead Gorgeous a lot. I think it's a really good movie. What else? Anything Shoot, positive know. or interesting to say about LA Story? Oh, I love LA Story. Thanks for bringing that up. I mean, that was, I read that script out loud and I just could not stop laughing. Hilarious. You read scripts. You know, I mean, it's, you don't do that, you yeah. know? But it's just brilliant, and uh, I love doing it. In fact, I saw Tommy Hinckley the other day. He'd been out of the business for years, and we were laughing about, we shot like, and it wasn't a week, maybe three or four days, we shot down at the Old Ambassador, 
you know, which was, uh, I think it's been turned over to the LA Unified School District or something like that. But we all sat around the table and we had a lot of fun. And it was great. And Steve was great. And, you know, it was a fun movie to do. And I thought it was a very funny script. I kept reading when I read for it, Gal and Mindy Marin cast it. And she said, Oh, they love you on this. They really want you to do this, but can you come in and read for another role? I said, Sure. So I read like four different times. I mean, I was in the movie, but it was unclear as to which part I'd play. And then they asked me which did I want to do, the weatherman or the um, the French maitre d', which Patrick Stewart did. So I said, I'll do the weatherman. Um, but I really wanted to do a part which was this funny agent who flew in on his own jetpack. And John Lithgow did it, but he's barely in the movie because of whatever, you know, because of editing decisions, stuff like that. But it was it was a lot of fun to do, and everybody was terrific. I Richard Grant is kind of brilliant, you know. So... Last project, uh, a word or two on Breaking Bad. Oh, that was fun. That was great. I mean, I was like, bing, bang, boom. I knew all those people. I, see, back in the day, and well, I, I promise not to, you know, go too nostalgic or anything, but no, please back do. in the early pilot season, late 80s, early 90s, me, Brian, Rusty Russ, Chris Rich, Peter Rieger, we all could have, we could have car shared because we were all going to the same auditions, you know? pilot season. And then they want the dad and he should be 35 to 40 or something like that. And then Brian landed on, um, uh, yeah, yeah, that one, you know, with Jane Carr's prison. No, what's wrong with me? You know, um, the, not when Frankie Moon is the, the series he did before breaking bad. Oh, um, Malcolm in the middle, Malcolm Sorry, in the middle. Is. There you go. Yep. Malcolm in the middle. He played Hal. Yeah, it was a fun episode. But, you know, and Brian's always been a sweetheart, and I, I did the thing. And I knew Anna Gunn from, oh, God, she did a series that my friend, the late Alan Kirschenbaum, created called Down the Shore. Um, somebody else on it I knew. So I read for it, and, um, you know, they flew me out, and bing, bang, and I did two episodes. It was fun. It was nice to be part of that show. I know it's a terrific show. And Gilligan was, you know, very smart, obviously, still. Was. That was kind of where I was going. Um, without comparing and contrasting Chase and Gilligan, can you comment on <clears throat> the je ne sais quoi about the two of them? They created these enduring, timeless television classics. What can you say that's in their DNA that's maybe common or, or something unique? Quite honestly, I, I, I have to sort of disqualify myself. I, I just basically said hello to Gilligan. We didn't have Fair any enough. kind of conversation as opposed to David Chase trying to think who else, you know, is in the upper tier like that. And, and you know, there are a number of them that I've worked with. I worked with James L. Brooks, of course, on the Tracy Ullman show. Yeah. Um, and Jerry Belson. Oh, shit. Um, and Freaks and Geeks. Well, that's, a, a, you know, Judd. Appetow. I think Judd is kind of brilliant, yeah. He had called me up and asked me to do it. And I said, sure. The show had already debuted. So I was, I think there were going to do eight episodes or whatever they did. I, three of them. And then in the third episode, I get caught out by my wife. I'm having an affair. And I played uh, Sam Levine's father in it. I was, you know, the younger kids set. And Judd had this whole idea plotted out for how it was going to be sort of, you know, and it was interesting. It really never been done before. It was going to be the relationship between a divorced father and his, his child. And David Crumholtz, who played my older son, if, you, if you're really into your, you know, trivia, uh, which is interesting because David looks like he's aged a bit, but he's brilliant, I think, really. I mean, did you, I mean, all I, I, what I will say this, and you can put it out loud and clear, I, I would give my left whatever to work with David Simon, Okay. And he's the guy I'd like to work with. 
My friend Jimmy Yashimura, who is a brilliant playwright and writer, works with a guy named Tom Fontana. I knew Jimmy from theater, and he's a dear friend. And he and Fontana were sort of the rabbis to David Simon when they were first doing Homicide. I think I've got this right, so don't, don't tell me if I'm wrong. But basically, they showed him a great deal because he was a you know newspaper guy. He yeah. hadn't done television and yeah. so forth. And, um, That's actually his strength, I think, is that he didn't come yeah. from that world. Absolutely. Um, but I would call when they were doing The Wire, I, Wendell Pierce is an old acquaintance of mine, and I would call him up, i say, you got anything? And the final season he calls me, he goes, listen, there's something for you now, because this final year they're going into the newspaper world, the Baltimore Sun, and a lot of middle-aged white guys, you know. So I charged after it, but the truth is, and I don't care if you say this, there's some of the East Coast casting people who will not bother with West Coast talent. I've heard it's that. Just too much, it's too much trouble for them. For instance, on Homeland, I've read for it numerous times, and I have a friend who was one of the producers, and they never see it, which kills me. But what are you going to do? Unless I'm in New York, then they'll see me, you know? And I go to New York. The one time they did see me for a Homeland, I was in New York. I had put myself on tape there. Anyway. Is there. it very much an out-of-sight, out-of-mind thing? I think it's sort of uh, an unspoken rule of thumb. I don't know, because I'm, I, I'm not privy to what the casting directors think, and I don't know that this is true of every casting director, casting director by any means. But I do know that on those two shows, I, can't, I couldn't get the time of day. You know? So, Interesting. make it out what you will. I won't put my foot any bigger into my mouth right now. So No, no, no. You, by the way, if you decide you want anything to be edited out, just let me know. But I asked that question, I've always wondered. I've never asked anybody to extrapolate on it, but it's. I've heard it at least a half dozen times. Well, on Sopranos, which was the last time I was flown into New York, and I've worked in New York a lot since 2000. Yeah. But the last time I was flown in was for the Sopranos. Wow. And they gave me an option, two out of three. So they were already playing with the formula. They're saying, we can fly you in, we can put you in a hotel, we can give you per diem. Pick two out of three. Now, my mother was still in the city, so I lived in her small bedroom, or the, the second bedroom, and I took my per diem, and I took the flight, right? But I haven't been flown in since. I have flown in, and I'm asked many times, and this, unfortunately, is now the nature of the business. They go, they want you on elementary. Do you work as a local hire? Meaning, in other words, they get to skip on, I shouldn't say this, maybe, they, they get to skip on expensive things like hotels and per diems and so forth, right. and airfare. So, but you take the work because work is work, you know, but we were fortunate in the last negotiations that after, I mean, Atlanta didn't get that status as well. I mean, you still have to fly you into Atlanta, but yeah, anyway, so, you know. Lightning round. Um, I ask everybody uh, a variation of these questions at the very end of the conversation, just to kind of share who you are with the world. Last good book you read? Last good book I read. Wow. Wait a minute. Let me look. I've got my I got my Kindle right here, and I can tell you. No, no. I'm gonna because I'm actually reading. I'm a big fan of Alan Firsts, and I'm reading his new one. The last good book I read. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you an absolutely. Yes, you got to give me a good one for posterity here. Yeah, I don't want to give you something that's too Tony like Kierkegaard or something like that. No, that's great. Uh, um, you want to get philosophical? I did read Let's go. The Elroy book. Elroy, he didn't kill me as much as some of the others. Um, I love guys like Don Winslow. Amazing. I read a lot, actually. Alan first, as I said. Well, I just read a book by a wonderful Spanish writer named Arturo Perez Reverte. 
if you can deal with that. Um, and it's called <laughs> What We... I didn't read it in Spanish. It's called What We Become. It's a fascinating novel. Actually, I recommended it to some friends. He's written a wide variety of things. Um, sort of national treasure. The other one was I read Philip Kerr's last book, Metropolis, which was terrific. He passed away. But he wrote a whole series of a guy named Bernie Gunther, uh, who was a German detective during the war and tries to keep a semblance of, you know, humanity about his work. Um, what else? That's great. I'm all, I'm also, there's one more I'm reading just to sound, you know, a little, a little fancy. I'm reading the, um, the British are coming by Rick Atkinson. I read his trilogy about second world war. He's a brilliant prize winning historian. And this is about the revolution, which I know virtually nothing about. It's amazing. You know, so you're learning so, and enjoying yourself at the same time, which is yes, yes, sure. perfect thing about a book. Sure, books are great. I haven't read a real book in forever, God. What music have you been listening to recently? That's top of mind. Oh, God. I, I listen to a lot of old dead black musicians, quite honestly. Um, actually, I was just watching the, the Motown Hitsville documentary. And when I was in New York a couple of weeks ago, my daughter and I went to see Ain't Too Proud to Beg, which is quite phenomenal, actually. But mostly I listen to people you probably haven't heard of. I don't know if you're into jazz at all. I will, like Hank Mobley. Of course. Okay, okay, good. All right, so I'm, I'm a huge I love jazz head. Blue Note guys, but I also have a particular fondness for this little fat English tenor player named Tubby Hayes, and you can broadcast this as loud as you want. Years ago, I did a pilot with Rashida Jones in like 2000, and the big thrill for me was I got to meet her daddy. All right, I amazing. And he comes around. I'm introduced. I'm I'm just about you know, I'm I'm, I'm fawning so bad. Just for those but that I don't know, we're check. talking about Quincy Jones. Right. I'm sorry, I just said cute, didn't I? Like, as if we hung out together. But he couldn't have been nicer. And I said, it's rumored that Tubby Hayes, who is this great English tenor player, but who made two trips or more to the States, played with you on The Liquidator, which is a film score he did with Rod Taylor. And he said, well, Quincy Jones, he said, well, Tubby Hayes didn't play with me. He said, but Tubby Hayes did because he was a Brit. Anyway, so I was able to confirm that rumor. Um, a guy wrote a biography on him named Simon Spillett, who's actually a very good tenor player himself. In fact, thanked me in the acknowledgments and so forth. So, But this is a guy I've just sort of been obsessed with for 20-some years. He died in 73. He was only like 38 years old, but he's a true virtuoso. In fact, I was taking tenor lessons, God, 20, 25 years ago from a brilliant uh, tenor player named Bill Green, who was one of the first African-Americans, along with Benny Golson, to break the color barrier in terms of scoring, you know, sessions here mm -hmm. in L.A. And I was talking about Tubby Hayes with him, and he went, oh, the man was a virtuoso. And if you ever get a chance, he's, he's well, he's an MFer, you know. I'm going to check him yeah. out. I thank you for that. I, I love, that's why I love asking this question because I learn something new every time. Um, yeah. what TV shows or films did you enjoy in 2019? What did I really, well, I loved, uh, you know, um, oh shit. Here we go. What did I just finish? I just finished Man on the Hill, which is, Steve Root is a very good friend of mine. And I, I, I'd watch him read the phone book, for instance. Um, he was the man in the high castle, rather, whatever I said, man on the hill. I did like, I actually like City on the Hill, because Kevin Bacon is just so dynamic in the thing, and I hope they pick it up, because it's the kind of show that I could do. And I do see LA actors on it, but I bet you dollars to donuts, Kevin Dunn at all. I'm sure they all work as local hires. Um, but I really like, um, um, you know, Peaky Blinders. Okay, um, that's a great one. What else? I'd, I'd love to do, because it's David Simon. 
Even uh, I thought even though it was truncated, I loved the last season of it. Um, what else? I watched a lot. I mean, that's the wonderful thing about today is that there's a lot of good television, you know? Um, trying to think of this. There's really nothing in terms of the networks that I watch with any regularity, you know? Um, I think it's safe to say that most people would taste... Uh uh, gravitate away from the networks, so it's not well, there's so- some good stuff, certainly. You know, um, I'm just uh, you know, I'm just you ask me, you know, my, my birthday right now, and I probably freeze. Um, no, no, it's it's uh, the, the spirit of the question is if there's something that's top of mind because that's really where the good stuff is. Like if you're really no, thinking no, about I love something. Peaky Blinders, and I, I just finished with Men in the High Castle. Any projects or things you're a part of that you'd like to tell listeners about? Well, I can sort of do this uh, somewhat looking uh, backwards. I did a play that I've been sort of involved with in terms of readings for nine to ten years. I need to do a little backstory on this. Ten years ago, I did a bad movie. Oops, I did a movie in New Hampshire. You can cut the bad part. I don't want to you know, diss anyone. In this movie, I became very close friends immediately with a girl playing my daughter, who was a brilliant actress named Julianne Emery, who was on Preacher, if you ever watched that. Um, she was living in New York at the time and she was doing a web series, which is also still one of my favorite things I've ever done. They flew me in on points and I did two of these 10 minute episodes and they're great. It's called, then we got help exclamation point. You can, you can Google it or it's on, you know, it's on YouTube. Um, she's brilliant and she's written and directed and she's a wonderful actress and she's quite beautiful. And there's also a wonderful, talented woman who played my daughter in these web series named Susan Ferrara. I know I'm going far afield, but stay with me. She asked me if I would do a reading of a play that she had written and worked on for years called Buzz, about the first or one of the first English directors in the early 70s in London who worked for the RSC, who did this brilliant production of Hammer with an unknown actor named Ben Kingsley in the title role. <laughs> Four days after it opened and it got reviews that would, your mother would cry over. She was found dead. She killed herself from with sleep meds. Anyway, there's this brilliant play about it, and we've been shopping it for oh, years. And we did it. Um, just recently, last August, I was down at the Alabama Shakespeare Festival, and they did a full production of it, and it was brilliantly directed by Carrie Preston, another one of my favorite people. And then Carrie came out to L.A., and we did a reading of another play of Susan's that this time Julianne directed called The Fall. So I'm hoping that down the road, everybody will know this woman, Susan Ferrara's name, because I think she's pretty close to genius. She's one of these writers who writes so brilliantly, you can never unpack it all because some of it comes from her unconscious, if that makes any sense. Sure it does. But it, it all sort of folds in together, you know? And so I would love it if something were to happen for her and I would, you know, I'd do whatever I could to help that along. Beyond that, I don't know. The funny thing is I just got a phone call. They're doing another version of League of Their Own. Hmm. Now, I did League of Their Own. I did the TV series in 93. And now they want me to read for the part that Gary Marshall did. May he rest in peace. And I loved Gary. Gary and Penny were two of my favorite people. Um, <laughs> so I, I would tell a story, but it's, it's really not uh, apropos. Anyway, uh, so that's interesting. And it's from... One of the guys who wrote Mozart in the Jungle, which I really like, Will Graham and the gal. Great series. Who was, did the, what is it, the, not the broad or something like that. I can't remember her name. Uh, Abby. Uh, she wrote this the thing with the two women. It was shot in New York. Did a couple broad of City. Yes, thank you. <clears throat> so, we'll see about that. Excuse me. 
down a long pipe. Anyway, that's it. Otherwise, I'd, I'd like to be on a series for five years and then tell everybody, you know, where to go. <laughs> Sam, thank you for being a part of this, and a special thanks for your candor and honesty. It's been a pleasure. Oh, sure. Thank you, Vic.